Hi, I'm Lisa. And I'm Julie. And together we are Two Sober Chicks. Just thanks so much at, for joining us. What are you looking at? I'm just looking at what part we are on. Like, is this part eight of our big book study? It is. Is part it part okay? eight? Part eight. And today on part eight, we're jumping right into chapter one, Bill's story. Uh, for those of you who may be just hearing this podcast for the first time, uh, Julie and I live in different countries, actually, now. We used to both live in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, but Julie currently resides in, um, not Nashville, what's the name of the little town? Do you want to say the town or no? In Tennessee. I live just outside of Nashville, in Tennessee, in the crazy states of America. Right on. So if we sound a little bit off, like when we say two sober chicks, it's because we're doing this over video recording. Yes. Yeah. Our timing is sometimes a little bit off, but hopefully this. We used to live in the same place and we would record in the same place. Yeah. And then I met and married a Nashvillian, an American who died three months ago as of Friday. Oh, it's this Friday? It was on Friday. Oh, last Friday. Yeah. So I'm not doing well, but I'm showing up because that's what we do. Right. Yeah. I was saying to uh, my neighbor in the driveway, uh, I was talking about the fact that I'm in the PTSD phase. So that's been fun, um, which is very apparently typical of tragic and sudden loss. And I made a mention of like how difficult it's been to go through this. And I said, and I'm sober, so I don't have the luxury of taking a pill or taking a drink or snorting a line or sexing it up or mm. shopping or gambling or anything else that might take the edge off. <laughs> and she was like, oh, gosh, I don't know how you're doing it. And I'm like, I don't know either, honestly. Is, is this the one that also is a widow or is this a different lady? No, this is my next door neighbor. Okay. Yeah. There are uh, like three widows on my street mm-hmm. and uh, one like seven minutes away. So, yep. That was a bizarre finding, wasn't it? Yeah. A new and different sisterhood, a new and different fellowship. It's funny because when I walked into my first uh, widow support group, I was, I started crying and the woman said, oh, I know, honey, part, you're part of a club now that you didn't want to be. And I was like, I just thought about it now. And I'm like, well, <laughs> we are kind of in a fellowship that we don't want to be like, no one wants to be an AA. (laughs) So I'm in my second fellowship of which I did not want to be a part of. But, but, um, I would guess that even because, because we're in it, because the circumstances were forced upon us, like the death of your husband and, and, uh, like, uh, our alcoholism, we then become grateful for the fellowship that we have. Yeah, I'm not grateful for the, I was going to say, I'm not grateful for the widow thing. It's, you know, complicated, which Mm -hmm. I mean, is probably how I felt in the beginning of AA too. Um, I am grateful for AA. It's funny because we were just talking about this. I'm still in process for my green card and I'm at the point where I have to get letters from people testifying to like who I am and how I live my life. And, um, one person mentioned AA. So I send it to my lawyer and I'm like, is this okay? Cause for me, I'm like, ah, like there's still a stigma. What if they question my citizenship? And he was like, no, it's good. Cause you know, it testifies to good things about you and that you're whatever. But then I got an email early this morning saying, you know what, on second thought, let's take that out. So then I had to tell the person to take it out. So the stigma is alive and well. Yeah. Just to be safe. Right. But yeah. Yeah. It is sad. Well, we've run into this many times and we've talked about this many times on the podcast where often when you tell someone you're an alcoholic, their response is like, oh, and because what they're thinking of is an alcoholic active in addiction. Right. Right. Yeah. Or someone that's just on the edge and at any time can be unpredictable, commit a crime, do something terrible. And not thinking about us and the years of sobriety and the change behavior and how I think some of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous members are some of the best citizens <laughs> that you could ever hope to have. Absolutely. You know, the rule yeah. followers, 
the people who try to take into consideration other people's feelings, um, trying not to get hurt by other people's behavior. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's uh, that's sad, and we're still praying for you and um, and that green card application to go through because that is where you want to be, and that's where you're close mm -hmm. to um, the spirit of your husband. Mm -hmm. That's what I exactly. want. I want for you to stay in that home. And I am in the studio that Lisa came down and sat in. So now she has context for what she sees on Zoom. Yeah. And she knows exactly where I am yeah. and how I'm right off um, my husband's meditation room where his remains are, where we had a tea party <laughs> <laughs> with, our, with Zach right in the middle. Oh, yeah. Sarah and I are odd. <laughs> it was awesome. But hopefully it was good for you. But yeah, we're like, yeah, let's, let's hang out here with Zach. And it was nice. What a what a uh, bonding experience I felt with both of you, um, you and Zach, that night in that room. I felt really connected and I felt really calm mm -hmm. um, being there. So it was a, it's a good space. It is. It's a good space. It is. Um, yes, and now I do have context. I did a, I don't know if I did, oh, I did a couple Zoom meetings, right, from that chair that you're sitting in, so. It's a nice room. It's a cozy room. Yeah. And that cool riff that's on that uh, little amp back there that you discovered. Someday mm -hmm. I think we should interweave that into the, into the recording. Oh, that would be cool. A new music bed for us. A little bit of Zach in the recording. Yeah. All right, my friend. Well, shall we get down to business? Absolutely. Bill's story changed my life, even though... I didn't think it did at first, but we'll get into that. All right. I'll let you begin. Okay. Chapter one, Bill's story on page one of the fourth edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned. And we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of a life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudices of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a doggerel, which is a trivial verse, on an old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. And that's not as we know pot today. No. Ominous warning, which I failed to heed. <laughs> okay, let's pause there for a second. Uh, <laughs> um, so pot is the pewter pot which they drank their beer out of. Mm -hmm. Um, and so basically this little dog roll is saying this guy died of alcoholism, right? Drinking cold mm -hmm. small beer. That's mm -hmm. what he died of. Um, and that's why it's an ominous warning. This guy died of his alcoholism, and they're saying, you know, um, whether a good soldier is never forgot, whether he died by drinking himself to death or he died in war. And I believe the war that they're mentioning is the Second World War, right? In 19, or is it the first? Must be Good the first. question. Not sure. Must be the first, because he writes the book in 39, right? Right. Okay. So it must be the First World War that they're talking about. The other thing that, uh, where was that now? It just jumped out at me. Um, the war. Here was love. Uh, this made me think of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. How often have we commented about how Al-Anons would not understand our meetings because mm. we laugh at things like people pissing the bed and... <laughs> Wrecking Christmas. Yeah. Waking yeah. up in their car that's crashed into a tree. You know, and that moments and war, like we fight, alcoholics fight at business meetings, but yet when we practice the principles, things usually work out, even out. Um, moments sublime, but intervals hilarious as we share our 
our stories together. There's applause, yeah. there's laughter when people are up at the podium. Um, that's funny. I've never thought about that before, but that was made me think. One of the things I have written in my margins too is when working with a newcomer, talk about identifying with the feelings that Bill um, talks about here. Because yeah. one of the things that kept me blocked in the beginning was saying, well, this is an old white Christian dude who was a soldier. Um, I have nothing in common with him. This chapter doesn't apply. And that's the part that I missed the first time around. No, I'm supposed to identify with the feelings. So the feelings he's already talked about are feeling like he's part of life at last. Um, then feeling lonely, turning to alcohol. And again and again, he's turning to alcohol. And then there's the grandiose feelings, feeling like he uh, is a leader and a veteran and all these things. So really focus on identifying with the feelings as Julie continues to read. Yeah. So page one to eight is Bill's alcoholic life. And as we're reading it, we are supposed to be reading it through a lens of drinking, thinking, and feeling, not gender um, experience as a man in wartime um, vocation. None of those things matter. It's why AA is so brilliant because it's anonymous. So we're not really supposed to know any identifying details other than how we relate to our alcoholism in the rooms. Because we don't ask people, so what do you do? Or what's your last name? Or where do you work? Or yeah, that may come out in our stories, but it's not relevant, truly. It's usually why when people ask me what I do in the beginning, I don't tell them because I had that one experience where when someone found out what I did, they were like, I can't work with you anymore. And I was thinking, what's changed? Like, yeah, nothing's changed between us. You just now are aware of what I do for a living and you have a judgment and a bias against it. So you're right. The anonymity is very important. Yep. All right. 22 and a veteran of foreign affairs. I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation. Hello, ego. My talent for leadership, I imagined, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. So there I took I, a, what I was uh, relating to with that is um, uh, expectation. He has a lot of expectation. So he thinks, imagined, he's going to be, because he was a leader in wartime, he's going to just walk in and be the CEO of some big company. They're mm -hmm. going to see his leadership and be like, oh, you're the man we've been waiting for. Mm -hmm. And I also had feelings of grandiosity written there. Sorry, continue. I took a night law course. I have in brackets here, security. Oh, no, that's for the word underneath. I took a night law course and obtained employment as investigator for a surety, which is security, company. The drive for success was on. I'd prove to the world I was important. Ego. Mm -hmm. My work took me about, and listen, for people that are new in the program, or this is the first time they're hearing this read, when we say ego, it is a huge part of our problem. So identifying it is important. And we don't, and what we mean by ego is the self, the grandiose self, the important self, the self-seeking self, self mm -hmm. um, pride. That's all ego, uh, survival at the, um, what's the word I'm looking for at the consequence or of someone else. It's just me first. I, 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 I uh, well, yeah. and, and, and also it, ego can stand for edging God out, which means I am the God of my universe and I make all the decisions and the impacts. And that's what we mean by that. Yeah. And what we learn as we go through the book is that, um, self can't reveal self to self. Um, we can't fix ourselves. We need help. Um, and we need a power. They talk a lot about power with a capital P over and over again in this book. I have written in the margin here too. Um, and I don't know who I heard this from, but obviously it was important enough for me to write down the first victim of our alcoholism or addiction is the truth. Hmm. Um, so honesty, and the truth. Mm -hmm. We spend a lot of time in fantasy and imagining things. So, which yeah. breeds ex false expectations. Yeah. Okay. 
My work took me about Wall Street, and little by little, I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was. Ooh, yeah. That's interesting. I've never seen that before. Potential alcoholic that I was. So obviously he's written this after he's gained perspective and after he's in recovery, but mm-hmm. it's to look back. I don't know, but for me to look back the first two years of my drinking, even though I wasn't alcoholic yet or behaving like one, I see it now like, oh, those are my potential alcoholic years. <laughs> yeah. Like if I had have maybe changed some of the habits and behavior, maybe I wouldn't have developed alcoholism. Um, but I didn't. I drank the same right from the beginning, mm-hmm. um, alcoholically. <laughs> mm-hmm. Throwing up, um, lack of drunk, hospitalization, all that from an early time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. We had long talks when I would still her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceived their best projects when drunk, that the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. It's like my former husband, my first husband, um, he would say, Julie, business deals happen after five. And that's what he meant was this sort of like drunken fellowship of men hashing it out. I think that's why I wrote the first victim of addiction is uh, the truth Um, because of that, because of that line, you know, we as alcoholics telling other people, making up excuses, making up lies, making up stories. Well, this is just what writers do. You know, Mm. Uh, I need, I need that. um, You know, I'm having writer's block. So if I drink, it will, you know, make me more brilliant or um, yeah business deals happen after five they happen in the bar rooms and the strip clubs and god knows where else mm-hmm. as you entertain your clients so and the first victim meaning there are many more victims usually our partners our children uh siblings other ma- family members people that we work with the yeah. victim list piles up i remember when i did all my volunteer work in the treatment centers and a lot of the clients would say, you know, I'm an artist, I'm a musician, I'm a designer, like, I will never create again without my drug of choice. But really, so like, listen, that is true in some avenues. But what is more important to you, your art, and your craft, or your life and your spirit? And you start, and a lot of times, once those people had entered recovery, had said they found a whole new creative source because they were connecting with their higher power, which connected them to nature and the human spirit and the supernatural. And, you know, some things you have to sacrifice, but you have to pick the hard. Is, are you going to pick the heart of recovery and see what that is and see how that's so life giving to you and your partners? And, your career and your soul, or are you going to pick the heart of addiction, which may very well be creating crazy ass things that are amazing. But then what happens to you in the midst? To me, it's the difference between selling your soul to the devil and committing your life to your higher power. Very different things and beautiful art can come out of both things. It's just you sell your soul to the devil, which means you are not living your own life anymore and you're under control of a dark force. Mm-hmm. Which a lot, you know, people that don't believe in God and the devil, ego can very easily be substituted for devil every time. Yeah, absolutely. Every time. Yeah. So don't let that bar you if you're like, oh, the devil. Well, let's call it ego then. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's another word for it for sure. Yep. Okay. We're at by the time I had completed the course, I think. By the time I had completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom, just turmoil, of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, this I have, this next line I have underlined in red, highlighted in pink, and outlined with green. Because this 
is exactly my story. I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Mm. A self-imposed crisis, right? So good. It's so good. Just thinking of like the solution to my whole life, which was alcohol, was now the ultimate destroyer of my whole life. It's like a best friend that walks you hand in hand. And one day, all of a sudden, there's a knife in your back and you're like, ah, what happened? Where did that come from? What the hell? Yeah. Yeah. Living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. It went into certain securities, thin, cheap, and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and managements, but my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. We gave up our positions and off we roared on a motorcycle. Bless his wife. Mm -hmm. The sidecar stuffed with tent blankets, a change of clothes, and three huge volumes of financial reference service. Our friends... We often talk about this poor Lois, right? Who is the founder of Al-Anon. Now we know why. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says things like, um, we decided. <laughs> I think he decided for her. Yes. And they both leave their positions. So she's following along behind him, giving up her own job, um, and then riding bitch on the back of a very uncomfortable. <laughs> I like riding bitch. Did they even have seats on those fenders in the in those days? Or I, I don't know. know. Depends on what type of motorcycle it was. But she didn't sit in the cushy sidecar. They had that full of stuff. Yeah. His precious financial volumes. <laughs> or Lois. Low so our Lois. <laughs> our friends <laughs> thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. I had had some success at speculation, so we had a little money, but once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. Oh, bad idea. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. Oh, the ego. My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. There was a loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair weather friends. All right, pause right there for a sec. So all of the, what Julie just read uh, basically is telling the story of how he commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn its flight like a boomerang and cut him to ribbons. Mm-hmm. So we, we hear a lot of the ego, I had arrived. My judgment and ideas, of course, led to paper millions. A lot of it is about him talking about how great he is. And it's all, everything that, that is good that is happening is all because of him. Um, and whoever disagrees can go F themselves is <laughs> yeah. what the scoffers could scoff and be damned. It's right. saying, go to hell. Go to hell, you guys. Look yeah. at me. Look at my life. Look at what's going on. Yeah, I don't need you. You don't know. So. The fair weather friends are people mm-hmm. who, you know, he doesn't care about. They don't have any input in his life. Um, and it, I have written in the margin for myself. Think about your own history in life and how you can relate to this. A host of fair weather friends. People were always around when I was picking up the tab, when I was buying rounds. But a lot of people didn't stick around when things got hard. Um, or or even I- in treatment or in trying to get sober. A lot of people in treatment make quote unquote friends. Yeah. And then when they get out of treatment, encourage them to party or to come out or to have zero respect for the work they're doing to get sober. 
So fair weather friends can be masqueraded as recovery friends, but you'll know them right away when they're putting you or asking you to be in situations that are a threat to your sobriety. Right. Like cheating on your husband or your wife with mm-hmm. your newfound love in sobriety, in rehab. And why yeah. is that? Because you think this person understands you. Well, they do understand you because they're an alcoholic just like you. And mm-hmm. neither of you have changed your behavior. So guess what's going to happen? You know, destruction's going to happen. It's yep. not going to be the love affair you think it's going to be in rehab. Or the friends that plan a coming out debutante ball party when you come out of treatment. I'm like, what? No. I remember my cousin saying, we're throwing him a party for getting out of treatment. I'm like, no, you're not. No, that's stupid. So what, were they going to serve champagne? I can't remember. I think it was like a big house, like a huge party welcoming him home. And I'm like, I don't think you understand the mind of an addict. Like that is not a good situation. Like having a family dinner to welcome dad back home is one thing. Mm -hmm. Having all your friends with like, even if there's no alcohol there, that's a bad idea. Like that's like having eye surgery and going to a club with all those lasers and strobing lights, like bad idea, man. Don't do that. By drinking assume more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night, the remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row and I became a lone wolf. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. I like that statement right there because it's saying too that even though he had money at the time, life Mm. was not happy. So it's a good reminder that, you know, money doesn't buy our happiness. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife, helped at times by extreme drunkenness, kept me out of those scrapes. In 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country. What? Thought he was a businessman and lawyer and Wall Street guy, and now he's playing golf. Oh, but that's what they do. It's one of their hobbies. Right. So um, my wife applauded while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Walter Hagen of that day would be like the Tiger Woods of our day. Yes. Uh, liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to crawl around the exclusive course, which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. There's that uh, false pride again, that ego. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. Abruptly, in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was eight o'clock, five hours after the market closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ minus 32. It had been plus 52 that morning. I was finished, and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. (laughs) I went back to the bar. (laughs) So we talk a lot about the ego. He's got a lot of judgment. He's judging people for um, being cowards and killing themselves. Um, But he's also a bit of a drama queen. You know, I was finished Mm -hmm. because he's he's lost millions. He's lost money. Um, So a lot of false pride there. Do you want to add anything else? Um, Just that's along the way when I was booked, which is basically someone taking you line through line, word through word in the big book. Mm -hmm. There are places where I um, added questions. So like on the previous page. On page three, it said drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. To make it more personal, the question is, did alcohol take an important and exhilarating part in my life? Um, Later, did my drinking assume more serious proportions? And then, yeah, that was just the comment I was going to make. Good questions. So write those down in your book. Write those down in your margins, people. 
All right. Um, my friends had dropped several million since 10, a 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow. So he doesn't give a shit about anybody else but himself. Tomorrow was another day as I drank the old fierce determination to win came back. I have tomorrow was another day underlined because I clearly remember saying I was not going to drink that day. And then when I would drink, it would always be, well, I'll, you know what? Tomorrow's another day. Tomorrow I will start. And it's the same, I think, with people diets. It's like, oh, you know what? It's my birthday today. I'll just start tomorrow. So it was always tomorrow that I would stop drinking. Yep. Putting things off, procrastination, uh, also denial, living in denial. Tomorrow is another day. For sure. Yeah, if we survive. I mean, I was blackout drunk driving every night mm-hmm. at the end of my whirlwind romance and destruction with alcohol. So like, <laughs> really? Tomorrow might not be another day. You know what? My husband didn't come home three months ago. So maybe there isn't another tomorrow. So right. what can you do now with the time you've been given now and not spit in God's face by taking control of something? That clearly expired, the expiry date was a long time ago. Like, maybe why not today? Yes, good place to start in today. Mm -hmm. Uh, My friends had dropped several millions. Oh, I said that already. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left, and I thought I had better go to Canada and mooch off that poor bastard. (laughs) That's not what it says. That's my addition. By the following spring, we were living in our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me, but drinking caught up with me again, and my generous friend had to let me go. This time, we stayed broke. I have ego again here. He's comparing himself to one of the, uh, <laughs> one of the uh, legendary you know, war heroes of all time, was Napoleon. And here he is comparing himself to him and saying, well, I wasn't exiled. Look at how great I am. Mm-hmm. Better than Napoleon. I came back. Um, and now we're taking a turn. We're going even farther down the scale. So this is um, really showing how Bill was a low bottom drunk. Like mm. Drinking just gets worse and worse. He has more and more um, things happen in his life, which are devastating, obvious signs. And he just keeps ignoring them. He's losing jobs. He's losing money. Uh, he's dragging his wife through hell. And now he's going to drag the in-laws through hell as well. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as the result of a brawl with a taxi driver. I love stopping there. My sponsor said, what do you think happened there? And we laughed about how he probably tried to dash. He probably Mm -hmm. couldn't pay his fare. (laughs) And the taxi cab driver beat the shit out of him. (laughs) Yep. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. Mercifully for him, let's let's add that. Let's point mm-hmm. that out. Not mercifully for his poor wife. <laughs> I'm sure if she'd had an inkling or an inclination that it was going to be five years, maybe she wouldn't have stayed so long. And then she has to do all the uh, the heavy lifting. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. What a kick in the teeth. She goes out and works all day while he sits at home alone and gets pissed up. Do you want to pick up at the top of the page five? I became an unwelcome hanger on at brokerage places. This is another rephrase this line in terms of a personal question. So it says liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. I have did liquor cease to be a luxury and become a necessity bathtub gin two bottles a day and often three got to be routine sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars and i would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens this went on endlessly and i began to waken very early in the morning shaking violently a tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required if i were to eat any breakfast nevertheless i still thought i could control the situation Or for us, did I still think I could control the situation? And there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Oh, there's nothing like a period of sobriety to 
to reinforce the false notion that we're not alcoholic. Maybe we're not alcoholic. I was just going to say, let, let's talk a little bit about that, that liquor ceasing to be a luxury. So when I first read that, I thought, well, that's not, I, maybe I'm not an alcoholic because, you know, really my drinking assumed those giant proportions from Friday to Sunday. And then maybe it was Thursday to Sunday. But I, you know, I held a job. I kept my job. Um, and I thought, I never shook violently in the morning. I didn't need to drink all day. I certainly didn't drink two or three bottles of gin, homemade hooch, <laughs> every day just to survive. So this is a good example of how, as alcoholics, sometimes we tend to try to discount ourselves as alcoholics, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. after that infamous period of sobriety. Excuse me, what is one of the most infamous periods of sobriety for us? It's the first few months of being in AA. Mm, mm, yeah. A little bit of sobriety, a little bit of knowledge can be a deadly thing. Because all of a sudden, we're playing the opposite game. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. Well, that person really drank hardcore. I was never like that. So this is your caveat, people. Do not compare yourself to other people. Do not discount yourself. When I went back later and looked at this with another alcoholic who'd had more time with me than me, like my sponsor, it was pointed out to me, did you ever drink the hair of the dog? Oh, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And the next morning, you know, oh, a Caesar would be good. Why was a Caesar good? I didn't oh, think for I needed the, it. For Americans, a Caesar is like a Bloody Mary with Clamato juice and other accoutrements. <laughs> yeah. The glass. Translation. Oh, yes. <laughs> Basically, it's a, you know, it's a tomato juice with liquor in it. So you can drink it and feel normal at breakfast or brunch. But it's awesome because it's like a meal because you put like horseradish and Worcestershire in it. And then you have like celery and like gherkins and they get really fancy up north some of them have like lobster tails in them and I was the cool thing though about like caesars is at least for me i can very easily make that into a non-alcoholic drink mm -hmm. which i like them so just like remove the vodka and that there's a caesar for me it's yeah. one of the drinks that i can have which i can fully participate in um, without being triggered by anything. Yeah. I, what I, what I mean by that is I would never drink non-alcoholic beer or wine or spirits ever in a million years. Yeah. Cause they but still taste like liquor. I just don't get it. Like I was watching a reality show the other day and there was, um, let's just, I'll just tell you what it is. Bling empire. And so these two, uh, people pitched non-alcoholic drinks as their business deals. One of them was in recovery and it, you know, tasted like whatever it tasted like. It was marked, it was fancy, but it was its own flavor and it, it was nice. Let's just call it a sparkling water with flavor. And it had like electrolytes and stuff in it. But the other person was not in recovery and made a non-alcoholic wine that tasted exactly like wine. And I was watching that laughing going, she didn't do enough market research because if she actually had spoken to people in recovery, she would know that we won't touch that shit with a 10 foot pole. That's not made for us. That's made for people that want to have wine and not get drunk. It's right. not made for people in recovery. So I was all for the guy in recovery because I'm like, he knows where it's at. He knows that drink won't be triggering and he can still enjoy a nice drink instead of tonic water when he goes out. And uh, the the panel bought the guy in recovery's idea because of the story, because he was like, this is why I'm making this drink and what it means to me. And she was just some chick that could drink, yeah. but wanted to make money off of an alcoholic tasting beverage. Wow. And we have talked about this before on the show. Non-alcoholic drinks are for non-alcoholics, mm -hmm. not alcoholics. Mm -mm. You will, um, you will eventually want to be part of the crowd again, that crowd. If you drink non-alcoholic beverages, I think for a, a time, you're going to just miss it. It's just going to be, I hate this word, but triggering. <laughs> you know what? I have been thinking about that a lot lately because I am in a PTSD phase right now. 
I suddenly get triggers. Now, what we discussed on one of our podcasts wasn't the fact that people got triggered. It was the, I'm triggered. And using that feeling of victimization to judge or create a situation where other people are responsible for our emotional state. But I suddenly get what a trigger is and it's not fucking fun. Right. But I don't put that on other people. I'll tell them, whoa, that just triggered me or I'm feeling really triggered right now, but I'm responsible for that. And most people are like, oh my God, I didn't know. And I'm like, of course you didn't know. Everything triggers me right now in this state. So for you, that might be a story, right? It could be anything that triggers, for example, usually breathing deep when people tell me to take a deep breath or my therapist or I take a deep breath, that would settle you down. Except for when you know from the person that held your husband's hand as he died, that he took two really deep breaths before he went to heaven. And now every time I try and take a deep breath to calm myself down, I'm actually triggered. But how could anyone know that? Really? No one could. No. So it's like, it's like navigating a minefield all the time, but like in early recovery, reminding yourself, it's not always going to be this hard. There's a lot of parallels because we have a lot of grief in early recovery, ton of it. And we can also be PTSD out by coming into recovery because of what we just went through. So yeah, I don't like the word either. I just have a whole new understanding of it now. Yeah, a different perspective for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you want to continue to read now? Yes. Uh, I still thought, no. Gradually, oh, the greatest things got, yeah. gradually, things got worse. Or rephrased, did life get worse? The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother in law died. My wife and father in law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious or enormous bender, and that chance vanished. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. Man, that's the moment of grace right there. He all of a sudden gets it. Which yeah. doesn't mean he's actually going to get it. He's going to do it. It's like what you talked about, you know? I, I know I need to go on a diet and exercise, but there's always tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so he, the problem is now known to him. He's identified it. He's like, damn, I got a problem. Yeah. But he's uh, still trying to control that problem on self-knowledge and willpower. Yes. And only because he's suffering the consequences. I was through forever. The great exclamation of the addict in the moment of intense suffering. Never again, I promise. Yeah. God, if you please just take this from me, I'll never do it again. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business. And so I did. Shortly, this is, I have this, uh, Right beside this next paragraph, a note that says my relapse. I relapsed uh, just after two years in recovery the first time. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. That was the part. There was no fight when I did this relapse. None at all. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. So what had happened here is that Bill put together a business deal and they were passing around bottles of Applejack. And the first time it went by, he's like, "Um, I'm not drinking. Then it came by again. And his thought was, oh, one little drink won't help. Like it literally was within seconds. Wow. And that's why he's like, where the hell was my resolve? That's as easy as it gets. And how quickly those thoughts can change, Mm -hmm. you know, and he, I've been in situations where 
a tray of like champagne has gone by and I have thought to myself, well, I should just take it and drink it so that I don't disrupt what's going on here or I'm not, or no one notices or I'm not left out. Like so easy. It's like driving by the liquor store for the first while after I got sober. It was like, I'm just going to go in here. And you're like, where, what, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. So, and this is, um, I think it's just time, right? And, and time and practicing the program, you know, mm. like look at your situation right now. Um, you said after two years, you just, whoop, no resolve. You just went out and got drunk. Was there a big event that happened? Was there a disruption? Uh, I was dating for the first time after my divorce and the guy I was with, although he claimed and I think this is very similar in a lot of dating stories with recovered people. They claim that, it, oh my God, that's so great. Oh, wow. That's amazing. What an accomplishment. And then slowly it becomes like his words were like, well, I don't think you're an alcoholic. I know a lot of alcoholics and like, clearly yeah. you're fine. And um, <clears throat> we went out to a Japanese restaurant and he had told me we were going to a wine and cheese at a friend's house like several days later. And um, I was worried about it because there was going to be obvious alcohol. Uh -huh. And he made a suggestion of like, like, well, why don't you just try a glass of wine here? Like, I won't let you get drunk. We'll see what happens and we'll go from there. And I was like, great idea. <laughs> and I ordered a glass of Sauvignon Blanc, which oh, I love. Wow. And I remember... The first sip, oh my God, it hit my tongue and I went, oh God, I remember what this feels like. <laughs> and it was just like bliss, like being reunited with an abusive ex mm. where you forget that they're abusive and you just remember all the good stuff and you're like, oh my God, I missed you. Right. And it was fine. And I had that glass and it was normal. Didn't have another one. Didn't want another one. No big deal. Right. And then within two weeks, I was like hungover and drinking all the time. But there was no pushback at that dinner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Go back up the page to the bottom of the first paragraph. And then there were periods of sobriety, which renewed <laughs> my wife's hope. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I also didn't call my sponsor. Right. Because I knew what she would say. And I was still going to meetings. No big deal. Yeah. And, and people making comments about like how good sobriety looks on me because I just passed two years and right. basically lying by omission and saying things like, thank you. And yeah. yeah. Um, do you, have you ever heard the term dirty chip? Oh no, but I love it. Yeah. So um, when I had relapsed um, my first sponsor, I was in Toronto, so I'd had a new sponsor but my first sponsor still lived back in the East Coast in New Brunswick, and he was dying of COPD. And uh, a dear friend of ours came to tell me this news in person. She was coming for a visit. And when she told me, I was just wrecked. And then she handed me his 20-year medallion and said, in case you're unable to come back and see him before he dies, he wanted you to have this. Wow. And I, I just fucking started bawling. And she mm. thought it was because I knew he was going to die. But what really was going on was it was a dirty chip. Here I was mm. accepting his 20-year medallion where he had worked so hard at sobriety to stay sober for 20 years. And I accepted it without admitting that I was now secretly drinking. Um, and even when I went back to his funeral, uh, well, I went back to see him and then a week later he died. So I went back to deliver his eulogy and I never told a soul there that mm. I was drinking. And I believe I went out and got drunk that night by myself and somehow ended up back at a friend's. I don't know how they didn't know I was drinking. <clears throat> but yeah, that was the dirty chip that I carried around for a while, feeling such guilt and such shame. And a friend of mine said, yeah, it's kind of like when people go up and They've relapsed, but they go up and get, you know, three months. They go up and get their three-month chip because they know everyone's expecting them to go up and get their chip. Mm -hmm. um, and I did the same thing when I relapsed on drugs. I kept going to AA meetings, and people were talking about the service I was doing. 
I was in the kitchen cleaning up coffee cups <laughs> afterwards. I was going early and setting up chairs and making coffee. But then I'd go home and get high. <laughs> I love it. Fucking I love us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're crazy. That's us running our own lives right into the ground. Yes. Okay. Renewing my resolve. Renewing my resolve. I tried again. Sometime passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. I, I could laugh, laugh. Right? Overconfidence. Yeah. Yep. I could laugh at the gin mills, which is another term for bars. Now I had what it takes. That's, I mean, hello, my relapse. I know, I know, I've been two years sober. Like, I got this. Yep. One day, <laughs> any line that begins with one day, I just love. One day, I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, a.k.a. tomorrow. But I might as well get good and drunk then. And I did. Yeah. Case of the, the rem- the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street lest I collapsed and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. Hair of the dog. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell. Again, well, so would I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms, for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were upon me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling, uh, meaning not the not being able to kill himself. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor, lest suddenly I leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. So let's just talk about the fact that when drugs are mentioned in meetings and are considered an outside issue, they have not read Bill's story. Right. Heavy sedative. Drinking both gin and sedative. Yes. He's a pill popper. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity, so did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. My brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Not the fancy treatment centers we have today. Just pause Under this, there. One of the yes. things I was going to say is that uh, my brother-in-law is a physician, and many other times throughout his story so far, I've noticed how many opportunities he has had mm. to get and stay sober or to get help. You know, other people are constantly helping him, his wife being the number one person, which I think is why Al-Anon is so brilliant and important and vital to the recovery of alcoholics, because it's us family members who enable the alcoholics and the drunks by constantly saving them, rescuing them, paying for them, sending them to treatment centers, working for them, you know, doing double shifts to pay for all the bills because your deadbeat alcoholic partner (laughs) is sitting at home alone, getting drunk all day. (laughs) So no wonder she invented that organization. Mm -hmm. Time to lovingly detach and such nice language too. Instead of Mm -hmm. kick that fucker, that lazy fucker to the curb. Mm -hmm. Lovingly detached. Don't let them lie there in their own puke. (laughs) Instead of washing them and then putting them to bed in nice pajamas. And then they wake up and think, oh, I got away with that one. Nothing bad happened. Yep. 
Um, under the so-called belladonna treatment, which again are drugs, it's a it's a sedative that they used to give people um, when they were detoxing from alcohol withdrawal. So now they do that with Valium. My brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that although certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. I have this underlined, highlighted, and boxed in with the word yes next to it. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. This is true. We are often referred to as weak-willed or low willpower, but like people with low willpower would stop drinking after the third time maybe they had a hangover and threw up. We just power right through. That's incredible willpower. <laughs> My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, which is not enough, people. Understanding is not enough. What is it? What do we call it? Uh, there's a line we have in the big book. Self-knowledge. Failed us? Mm. self-will run riot no it was it's basically just saying like self-knowledge means nothing um it's key to getting to where we need to get but really it means nothing um understanding myself now i fared forth in high hope for three or four months the goose hung high i went to town regularly and even made a little money Surely this was the answer. Self-knowledge. Oh, it says go to page 31. It's going to have the quote. I just know it. Page 31. So 31 is in the chapter called More About Alcoholism in the fourth edition. Mm. Of the big book. Page What's the seven? line you just read? It refers to, for some reason the paragraph where it's the methods we have tried. I don't know why it says that. Anyways. About despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe they are in that class. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. Maybe. You have to talk to your sponsor. Figure that yeah, out. I have to figure that out because I even have a question mark saying page seven. <laughs> yeah, give us a call. I mean, call her and then let us know. Yep. Uh, but it was not. Surely this was the answer self-knowledge is what he says. But it was not for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. I just have that imagery of my head of those skiers that go down that crazy incline are just flung into the air. Uh, it's a good, it's a good mental image. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This was the finish, the curtain. It seemed to me, my weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens or the shakes, or I would develop a wet brain, which is irreversible, which they call. There's another name for wet brain. Perhaps within a year, she would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. Huh. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of sots who had gone on before i thought of my poor wife there had been much happiness after all what would i not give to make amends but that was over now this talks then, about the real hopelessness right like mm -hmm. he's at that point now where he's welcoming death he feels that hopeless that he can't live without alcohol he sees alcohol as the only escape the only solution and he doesn't know how to quit. He thinks, oh, self-knowledge is it, and, and I'll be okay now. But then he's proven to himself a couple times, oh, that doesn't work. I'm still getting drunk. I can't control this. He's completely hopeless at this part. 
at this point. Oh, isn't it self-knowledge availed us nothing? That's it. Okay. So I have beside this next paragraph. Should we stop here? Sure. Are we, that's the next, over now? Because the next paragraph is Bill's step one moment. Yeah. Okay. So we're stopping at the uh, top of page eight, uh, but that was over now. And this is over now. So goodbye. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. As we continue on, we'll continue on next time with Bill's story. Yes. Thanks for joining Two Sober Chicks. I'm Lisa. I'm Julie. Have a great 24. Yes.